We're reading Philippians chapter 2, beginning at verse 12. Therefore, my dear friends, as you have always obeyed, not only in my presence, but now much more in my absence, continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you to will and to act according to his great purpose. Do everything without complaining or arguing, so that you may become blameless and pure, children of God without fault in a crooked and depraved generation, in which you shine like stars in the universe, as you hold out the word of life, in order that I may boast on the day of Christ that I did not run or labour for nothing. But even if I am being poured out like a drink offering on a sacrifice and service coming from your faith, I am glad and rejoice with all of you. So you too should be glad and rejoice with me. I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you soon, that I also may be cheered when I receive news about you. I have no one else like him who takes a genuine interest in your welfare. For everyone looks out for his own interests, not those of Jesus Christ. But you know that Timothy has proved himself, because as a son of his father, he has served with me in the work of the gospel. I hope, therefore, to send him as soon as I see how things go with me. And I am confident in the Lord that I myself will come soon. But I think it's necessary to send back to you Epaphroditus, my brother, fellow worker and fellow soldier, who is also your messenger, whom you sent to take care of my needs. For he longs for all of you and is distressed because you heard that he was ill. Indeed, he was ill and almost died, but God had mercy on him, and not on him, but only, but also on me to spare me the sorrow upon sorrow. Therefore, I am all the more eager to send him, so that when you see him again, you may be glad, and I may have less anxiety. Welcome him in the Lord with great joy, and honour men like him, because he almost died for the work of Christ, risking his life to make up for the help you could not give me. Lily Potter. Lily Potter does something amazing in the first Harry Potter book and film. When Lord Voldemort, Boo Hiss, uh, wants to do harm, wants to take away the life of Harry Potter, Lily Potter does something amazing in a, in a wonderful moment of a motherly, self-sacrificial love. She gets in the way, puts her body on the line, and protects her infant son from the evil Lord Voldemort. She takes what uh, he aims at uh, this little baby boy uh, and she takes it into her own person and protects him forever. It's a substitutionary sacrificial work that she does. It's right in the first book. It's there in the first film. And Voldemort cannot touch him. But a scar is on his body, on his little head. And it burns at uh, time and again throughout the seven films and seven books. Later on in the first book, first film, Harry Potter goes to his mentor, Dumbledore, and says, how did it work? 
What did mum do that's protected me in my life? This is a quote. Why couldn't he touch me? Dumbledore says this. Your mother died to save you. If there is one thing Voldemort cannot understand, it is love. Love as powerful as your mother's for you leaves its own mark. Not a scar, no visible sign. To have been loved so deeply, even though the person who loved us is gone, will give us some protection forever. Three moving words. And, and why is that moving? Why does it get us in this children's book that sold quite a few million copies and has made a few pounds and dollars for the author? Because no life-changing love comes without sacrifice. Often it's a mother or a father. It can be others as well. But when someone sacrifices something so much for us, it moves us and it can change us. There is nothing so great as self-sacrificial love. Self-sacrificial love makes a difference in someone's life. And Paul riffs off that theme in verse 6 to 11 to say, there is no greater self-sacrificial love than the Lord Jesus Christ. Let me tell you how his action should change your heart, should change your mind, your your attitude, your mind, literally, chapter 2, verse 5, should be like not Lily Potter, whose actions were great, although she's a fictional character. The Apostle Paul says, let me tell you about a historical character, and his name is Jesus, verses 6 to 11. Let me tell you about his journey and what his actions should do to your heart and how they should change your mind. The Lord Jesus Christ had to die. He couldn't just shrug off evil. He couldn't just ignore sin. The Lord Jesus Christ is so just that he had to pay our debt, our price. That's what the table is all about that we will celebrate later on. But he's so loving, he didn't just have to do it. He was willing to do it. The Lord Jesus Christ, God himself, the most high became the most low and he did it for you and that puts a, a scar on our heart you could say that glows that changes us he came to serve and sacrifice those two key words service and sacrifice are central to this passage and indeed the whole book and that's made a difference once and for all, it should, verse 5 of chapter 2, it should change our mind. It's the antidote to living a life. Verse 3, of self-centeredness and of hunger for glory. That hunger is dealt with by the Lord Jesus Christ in verses 6 to 11. And Paul says, okay, if that's the truth bomb that should explode in your heart and should transform your mind, so what? Where's the ripple effect into your life? And that's why the word therefore is the first word in verse 12 of chapter 2. Therefore, because of all of this, therefore, let's rub it in, let's work it out. Because the gospel should change your mind and it changes your mind and heart from the inside out. That's the first thing to think about. How does the gospel change us from the inside out? Verse 12. Therefore, my dear friends, as you've always obeyed, not only in my presence, but now much more in my absence. Remember, he's in jail. 
continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Now remember, you've got a list of every religion in the world and it's written down on a Google form. And then there's Christianity that stands by itself because Christianity is different. Every religion in the world says you need to work hard enough, you need to do enough, you need to give enough, you need to be changed enough by your own strength and resolve so that God will approve of you and love you and you have absolutely diddly squat assurance. And then there's Christianity, that Christianity says you cannot save yourself. And so God comes down the religious mountain, as it were, and he rescues you. And you are approved and you're accepted by the sacrificial death of Jesus Christ. And out of the security of that love that is given to you, then you obey. It's unique against all the religions in the world. Because it's inside out, where all the religions of the world are outside in. Look at verse 12. It does not say, work for your salvation. It does say, Work it out. God's transformed you. God's rescued you. God's done what you cannot do for yourself. And so because of that, verse 12, therefore, work it out. It's a bit like the bake-off. Now I'm told when you make cookies, it's hard work um, because we buy it from a packet, so it's less hard work for us. But, but these guys who are currently doing um, something in a tent that was filmed some time ago, and if you Google it, you can find out who won, probably. But they are pretty good at making cakes. And when it comes to cake week in Bake Off, um, I would be excluded because of my previous reputation. But apparently, you make a mixture, you chuck in some chocolate bits if you're making chocolate cookies. By that, I mean you carefully measure out but you chuck in a handful of uh, chocolate bits and then you go to hard work. There's, there's no shortcut to hard work with a spatula. Don't tell me you can do it electronically because we're saving on energy because of the energy crisis. But there you are, you're trying to make cookies and you've got all the dough and batter or whatever it's called, chucking chocolate bits and then it's the hard work of mixing it all in because you must not have, like my cakes, the odd bit of flour. You can still see its flour because it's not been mixed in properly. That never happens on Bake Off or it gets a big and a thumbs down from the silverback who is Paul Hollywood and all his merry men. In other words, when you're making a bunch of cookies, it's just jolly hard work that you need to work in the uh, chocolate bits so that's equally distributed or raisins or whatever you're making. This word that comes in verse 12 that says, work out your salvation it's a strong word that literally means continuous, sustained, strenuous effort. A climbing sort of word or a marathon climbing sort of word or a, a hard work of, 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 of making a mixture with no electronic devices. That's what Paul is saying. Because of God's transformative nature in your heart, you've got new priorities, new passions. Work it out. But it's hard work. What hope have you got? Here's the hope that you have. He's talking about obedience, and he's saying obedience is long-term, it's every day, and it's hard work. But notice the Spirit of God, who helps you to mix in the truth of the gospel into your life, the Spirit of God takes the Word of God and the truth of God and makes you into a person of God as he works the truth into your heart and changes you over decades. It's not two minutes of beating. It's a lifetime of change. There's no shortcuts. 
There's no easy, uh, I'm going to get a taxi and I'll get to Katishatsak and then I'll finish the marathon. There's none of that. It's hard work. Because this word obedience that's there in verse 12, what an uncomfortable and unpopular word that is. We're freedom, we're uh, independence, we're uh, self-expression and self-reliance. And the Bible says, no, no, no. The minute you become a Christian, it's not Independence Day. The sign that you've become a Christian is you, you mark in your calendar, I became a new person in Jesus, and that's Dependence Day. That's Dependence Day, when you start to realize that all my life I've been living in my own resources and strengths and energies, and it was never enough. I need to live dependently on the person of Jesus Christ and trust in his righteousness. And every hour I need thee, says the old hymn, because it's true. When you finally become free in Jesus, it's dependence day. It's the exact opposite of what our culture is just bombarding us with. It's true freedom in Jesus Christ, in him, in him, in him, nothing outside of him. When God works in your heart, verse 12, verse 13, so that the word of God is in your heart and he works it in so that true freedom is when you do what you most truly desire and God takes your passions and his passions and so what you most truly desire is to do his will. That means you're a free person. Motives and desires are very mixed. We're so selfish. But God transforms a heart and a mind so actually you want to put... Others first, and not yourself. We've seen that in chapter 2, verse 5. Your mind should be the same as that of Christ Jesus. Verse 4 of chapter 2. You should not think of yourself so much as, as the interest of others. It's reworking our central processing unit. So Paul reminds us that true change happens. Verse 12, continue to work out your salvation, hard sustained energy, with fear and trembling. Why? How is that possible? This is so hard. I'm climbing up a mountain. You don't know what I struggle with. Verse 13. For. For. Because. For it's God who works in you. To will and to act according to his good purpose. So here we have fear and trembling because of this truth. Christian friend. Almighty God is in your heart. Just take a moment to think about that. To will and to act what he wants. So you're not left floundering. Okay, I need to get better out. I need to do this differently. No, God is at work in your heart, in the person of the Holy Spirit, to make your wills and your affections and your actions more in line with his. So he will do, he gives what he asks for. Verse 13, it is God who works in you to will and to act according to his good purpose. Your, your working and your willing is actually his working and his willing. You're not left to flounder by yourself. It's hard work and it's a breathtaking thought that the, that the almighty God, the same power from the book of Ephesians that raised Jesus Christ from the dead is now at work in you. That's an awesome thing. Willing and working, sustaining, empowering this strenuous t task of making you more like Jesus Christ. So keep on obeying, verse 12. And it's a fearful and a wonderful thing, verse 13, because it's God who's acting to transform you to the person he wills you to be. So you are not alone. 
You are not independent. You're completely dependent on his sustaining power and on his grace. But sin is so hard. Yes, but in Christ you have every resource you need to say no to sin and yes to righteousness. And so work it out. But you're not alone. See this wonderful paradox that there is? You've got to work hard. But God is at work enabling you to work hard. So don't be disheartened. So the truth of the gospel being worked into every corner of your being like someone beating chocolate chip pieces into the dough. So maybe you want to watch Bake Off. Maybe you don't. But it's inside out. It's transformative nature of the power of God in the gospel. And how does that happen? It happens through service and it happens through sacrifice. That's the second thing. Service and sacrifice. We've been on this journey through Philippians. We're going very slowly and that's great. And you wonder why it's written. What's the purpose? What's the authorial intent? If you're in Key Stage 3, you know what that means. What's the authorial intent of writing this letter? Why did Paul write it? Look at chapter 1, verse 1. Chapter 1, verse 1 is very interesting because there is a piece there that's in no other letter that Paul writes to other churches. It's not in the, the book of uh, Ephesians or Galatians or Corinthians chapter 1 verse 1 to all the saints in Christ Jesus at Philippi together with the overseers and deacons why does Paul include overseers and deacons I wonder chapter 2 verse 3 why does Paul write this then make my joy complete by being like-minded verse 2 having the same love being one in spirit and purpose then verse 3 do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit Chapter 2, verse 14. Here's another clue. Why does Paul write this letter? Do everything without complaining or arguing. Why does Paul write to the leaders? Why do they get included? And why does he go for the heart to say unity is under threat because you're selfish? And unity is under threat because you have a, ten a tendency, a propensity, verse 14, to complain or to argue. That may be the very reason that Paul's writing the letter. Because there is a complaining spirit that's festering. They've got all their doctrine, all their belief. They're a, a healthy church on the outside. But there's trouble brewing. And it could be a complaining spirit that's aimed at, verse 1 of chapter 1, the overseers and the deacons. And so Paul gets out, verse 14 of chapter 2, these two words, do everything without complaining, that's the first one, and arguing, chapter 2, from the Old Testament. He goes all the way back to a passage in Exodus, chapter 16, verse 7, um, or you can look at Numbers 11, verse 1, to, uh, verse 1 and following. He says, this is what happened in the Old Testament. There was a period of time where God's people, the Israelites, were, were led into the wilderness as a judgment for their sin. And they complained. They complained against God's leaders. And that's always the way it works. That they, they murmur and they grumble. And rather than taking responsibility for their actions, they complained against the leaders of the community. That was Moses and Aaron. Because they were complaining at God and his provision for them ultimately. That's always the way it works. When things go badly, people complain. And very often in the Bible, it's aimed at leaders. The cost is too great. Why did you bring us here? The way is too difficult, Moses. Why could we not go back to Egypt where they've got cucumbers? We had food. Yeah, but you were slaves in Egypt. Yeah, we've forgotten that, but it'd be better there than here. The way is too hard. The cost is too great. Look at what Paul says. 
do everything without complaining or arguing because if you are going to be pure children of God amidst a crooked world we must put away that selfish self-centered complaining spirit we need to be who we are and who are we we want to be women and men who shine like the stars on the darkest of night verse 15 and into 16 be who you are shine like stars that the glory of God will be seen as you hold out the word of life to a lost crooked generation whether that be in your home, neighborhood, workplace. And that begins with controlling our mouth, doesn't it? We have a uh, propensity to be a complaining people or an arguing people, and that always gets expressed through our, through our lips. Now let's get personal. How do people view you? When uh, you're not at church, when you're on best behavior, when the mask gets put on, as we often describe it. How about you when you speak? How about you when you are tempted to complain, do you? How about you when you're tempted to, to argue against those uh, who don't understand how you feel, who are putting too much pressure on you? That may be true, but do you go through the right channels? Or are you someone with a complaining spirit? Someone with a murmuring spirit? Someone with an arguing spirit? How brightly are you shining? Or is your light getting dimmer and dimmer because this is in your spirit? What challenging words there are. How can we hold out the word of life, verse 16, in one moment and then the next moment we're slagging off our bosses? We're putting their name through the dirt. We've got a complaining spirit that nothing is ever right. You're there to meet my needs and I will not have anything to do with you. I'll just ghost you when you stop meeting my needs. Paul has nothing like that in his life. Verse 16, his chief concern as he looks at his life, what gets him up with a cold sweat in the middle of the night is the future day of Jesus. Look at what he says. He says, all of my life is poured out like a drink offering in verse 17. The thing I'm most concerned about is the day of Christ, the day of Jesus Christ. I don't want to boast in anything, but on that day, I want to be able to boast on the day of Christ that I didn't waste my life. I got my priorities clearly defined and in right order. I live for Jesus and everything else could go second. And so I poured out my life, verse 17, like a drink offering. All this strange imagery of uh, sacrifice, verse 17. Seeing these two words, sacrifice and service. It's uh, taken from the Old Testament where there were lots of different offerings offered for God's kindness and his provision throughout the church year, you could say. And you can go back to Genesis 35 or you can go back to Exodus 29 beginning at verse 38. And there you'll see the practice of a drink offering every morning, every evening. You get some flour, you get some oil, you mix it up and you offer a drink offering, a sacrificial offering of gratitude to God simply because of who he is and what he's done and how he, he listens and interacts with his people. And Paul says, just as they did that in the Old Testament at the beginning of the day and at the end of the day, I'm going to use that image to describe my whole life. My whole life is, a, is an, a drink offering of gratitude to God for his grace in his son. And so all of my life's priorities and efforts and motivations and actions 
are looking forward to that day. And I don't want to miss one opportunity to hold forth the word of life. And my heart is intimately bound to yours. So that as hopefully you're encouraged by me sharing the gospel, holding out the word of life with the Praetorian Guard, chapter 2. I'm encouraged by you as you keep persevering in the face of suffering and difficulty. And what's that like? It's a two-way street of encouragement. As Paul perseveres, he's about to have his head handed to him, so to speak, in the coming months, we expect. And yet the church in Philippi are encouraged by him, persevering with the gospel, and he's encouraged with them as they send him a love gift of a person and with some resources as well. It's about partnership, chapter 1, verse 6, between the apostle and the church and fellow Christians. He does not want a wasted life. How about you? How about you? It's getting a bit challenging. Well, you haven't seen anything yet. Let's persevere. We all have duck mothers in our lives. Here's a picture just to uh, keep you interested. We all have duck mothers in our lives. What do I mean? That's a funny phrase. You know, you see uh, these little um, signets or what have you, ducklings, whatever they're called. They follow the mother. They're putting their, literally, their, their paddle steps, their footsteps, their duck feet steps. What are they called? Whatever they're called. Their little feet following the duck. They have duck mothers. You say, There's a great example. That's the way to do it. You see it with children. You see it with carpenters. They're a chip off the old block. You see it uh, in many ways of life. I'm not just going to tell you how to do it. I'm going to show you. Paul says it's so important to have examples of right living. And the book of Philippians is just saturated with them. Chapter 2, verse 6 to 11. He's laid before the church of Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ himself. Here's the antidote against pride. It's King Jesus. And then he says, you can look at my life. Chapter 3, verse 18. I've lived before you as a pattern to follow. And then he says, I'm going to give you two more examples of what it means to work out your salvation. Therefore, chapter 2, verse 12. And here's the first one. Timothy. Timothy is a great example of service. And then Epaphroditus, what a mouthful of a name, verse 25 and following. He's a great example of sacrificial living. How can you live a self-sacrificial life and a life of service for Jesus? Look at verses 20 to 22 with me. Here's Timothy. There's no one like him who has compassion for you. It says he takes a genuine interest in you. When everybody else is looking out for themselves, in comes Timothy and he prioritizes the priorities of King Jesus rather than his own, which is the work of the gospel, verse 22. You know, Timothy has proved himself because as a son with his father, he has served with me in the work of the gospel. What's important to Timothy? The same thing as is important to Paul. The gospel, holding out the word of life. And he's a man of compassion. He puts others' interests before his own. But also, verse 22, he's a, man, he's a man of proven character. Now, I like the odd architectural and construction program. I'm odd like that. I'm odd in many ways, but also in this way. I watched a documentary on the uh, repairing of Notre Dame. Before drones were created and helicopters existed, they are of uh, skilled craftspeople. And they built what's known as the forest, this superbly, it is from me anyway, superbly constructed roof structure with tons and tons, thousands and tons of oak. They constructed these uh, um, 
restraining walls with, with iron staples that no one saw until the fire came along. They did intricate design that nobody would see. But they had an integrity of skill set and of work that they said to themselves, I'm sure, if no one else sees this, if no one else's eye is upon it, I'm going to build to the best of my ability. And fire has shown their skill set, whether it be in the stained glass windows or these walls or stonework or woodwork or lead work. It's an object of beauty and intricate design. Verse 22, Timothy has lived a life of service. He has proven himself, verse 22. Character has been tested over time and through hardship, whether someone's been looking or not. That's the point of Notre Dame. Someone has said the problem with life is that it's just so daily. It just comes around every 24 hours. There's more sandwiches to be made. There's more shoes to be put on. There's another train to catch. There's another email to be responded to. Remember emails? There's another WhatsApp message that I've got to respond to. The problem with life is it's just so daily. The Apostle Paul says, look at Timothy. He's a man of compassion. He's a man who's proven himself, verse 22. He's a man who's proven himself over time. There is nothing between his private life and his public life. If he were a stick of rock, he would be the same all the way through. Friends, how about you? Is there a difference between your public persona and your private life? Are you someone, a man or woman of integrity? Are you someone who has a passion to serve King Jesus with other people's interests before your own? However costly it is. Because it was costly for Timothy. But then we get to Epaphroditus. Epaphroditus, he's all about cooperation and not about competition. Now the Apostle Paul, this is interesting, he had such a skill set for leadership. He was an excellent leader and he was brilliant in logistics. He planted churches. He was a superb teacher and he was an excellent trainer. He was happy to do administration. He was skilled in the academy. And yet, chapter 4, verse 18, just look at it with me, please, says he could not get through life by himself. I have received full payments and even more. I am amply supplied now that I have received from Epaphroditus the gifts you sent to me. Without Epaphroditus, Paul would have uh, fallen. He would have struggled. He would have suffered. And imagine the, the conversation, verse 25. He's your messenger of chapter 2. He's your messenger whom you sent to take care of my needs. And chapter 4, verse 18 proves it. Imagine the conversation in the church. We know that Epaphroditus was sent from the church at Philippi to Paul. But there's no Uber. There's no plane. So imagine the conversation. Uh, we've just heard from the Apostle Paul that he is in jail. He needs help. He needs support. And he needs it urgently. He needs clothes. And he needs it quick. Who's going to go? Epaphroditus puts his hand up. By the way, it's an 800-mile journey. He keeps his hand up. By the way, it's going to take at least six weeks of your time. So that may be your vacation allowance up for the year. He still keeps his hand up. It's going to be hard and difficult. And you can provide your own transport. Thank you very much. He still keeps his hands up. He's your messenger whom you sent to take care of my needs. Verse 30, it looks from Philippians chapter 2 that he was prepared to risk his life. He contracted some sort of disease, but he was so concerned with the needs of the Apostle Paul that he kept on going 
deliberately, intentionally, through hardship, through difficulty, through physical suffering, through spiritual challenges. He kept going and he finished. He completed his job, which is to get the resources, the gift to Paul. 800 miles over six weeks. What sort of person are you? Hey, back off. What sort of person are you? Are you a delegator? Are you someone who never gets stuff done? Are you someone who keeps going when it's comfortable and when it's convenient? Are you someone who completes things that they begin and takes great pride in it? Everything costly in life comes with a price tag on it, someone has said. Everything costly in life comes with a price tag on it. All of them. Epaphroditus did not say, I'll get back to you on that. I know Paul's needs are great, but I'm just going to see if something better comes along. No fear of missing out. Epaphroditus did not say, I'd really like to help Paul with that, but there's just this one thing I need to do. Epaphroditus volunteered to a task, and when it was difficult, he kept on going. When it was sick, he didn't uh, quit. He hung in there. He was willing to pay the price for his convenience and his comfort. Service came before security for Epaphroditus. And then there's courage. Look at verse 29 and 30. Welcome him in the Lord with great joy and honor men like him. Verse 30, he almost died for the work of Christ, risking his life to make up for the help you could not give me. Now, in our society, is it not true to say that the role of your working life is to provide for retirement? And the earlier the retirement, the better. But the goal of work is rest. And the Bible says, no, the goal of rest is so that you can work. You work hard enough, says the culture, to save enough. Because in our hearts of hearts, we have a deep need for security. And that's, that's a God-given need. Long hours in a job that many people will not find rewarding. But here is the apostle and he's saying, this is what God values. God values those people who put service in his kingdom before earthly security. Now isn't that countercultural? God values those people who put gospel service before earthly security. And one of the problems with the Bible is that it never talks about gambling, right? Wrong. Verse 29 and 30, it talks about the ultimate gambler. His name was Epaphrodites, and he staked it all. He hazarded uh, his best guest. He gambled. He risked his life on this one cause, which was the cause of King Jesus. He's God's gambler. The word is he risked it all. Didn't hold anything back. He didn't put it all on red or he didn't put it all on black or all in pontoon. He put it all on the kingdom. How about you? I'll just turn it down a bit. You're getting a bit enthusiastic. How about you? What are you willing to give up for the kingdom? How reckless are you willing to be for the cause of the gospel? Will you sacrifice your name in year seven? So you say you go to church and you know that you're going to get the mick taken out of you. Will you sacrifice your reputation? Will you sacrifice some financial security? I'm absolutely brilliant. Thank you for being so humble, you say. At clinging to my self-protection by creating intricate strategies so that the cost doesn't get too much. And then I have brilliant ways of self-justifying it. 
I wonder if you do too. It's all designed to say, I'm willing to give this, but not that. I'm willing to be self-sacrificial, but only so far. Epaphroditus knew nothing of that. 800 miles over six weeks, no matter what it costs, even if my own physical health and life, I'm willing to do that for the cause of Christ. So much better to uh, burn out than rust out, someone says. We do need boundaries. You could argue that Epaphroditus needed some boundaries in place so that he could serve the Lord Jesus for longer. But isn't it interesting that he's not condemned? Isn't it interesting that 2,000 years later we still know about Epaphroditus because of what he did and men and women in the Bible who did just the same thing? It's about service and it's about sacrifice. It's about inside-out living. Now, how do you do that? How do you change? Let me tell you a story. There's a story on the screen called The Black Bull of Norway. It's a bit Cinderella-like, so if you've fallen asleep, now's the time to wake up. There was once, it's a fairy tale, so if you're sitting comfortably, I'll begin. There was once a king who went on a journey and he slayed an evil foe. And he didn't want anybody to know about it, but the problem was that there was blood all over his sash that he had around his waist. And when he got back to his kingdom, he started to try and clean it and nothing he could do could clean off the stain from his garment. And so he put out a notice saying to anyone, any princess or any uh, servant girl that can do this, it was gender stereotyping in those days, um, for anyone that can do this, I'll give my hand in marriage. You'll become a queen, you'll become a princess. So people started to do it and no one could do it, but then there was one, one servant girl who took the garment, the sash around the king's waist that had blood all over it, and she cleaned it until it was as good as new. There was an evil stepmother, Buhis, who heard that she had done this, and she took it off her and gave it to one of her daughters who tried to take it to the king, but the king saw right through it. The king said, I don't, don't believe that you did this. There's something strange going on here. And in time, he found the servant girl who actually had taken the garment and got the stain out. And they were happily married ever after the prince discovered the king discovered who got the stain out now that's a fairy tale but on the cross Jesus got the stain out he got the stain out from our hearts he took the price that we should have paid and when you know that's what you need you can come to the table with great rejoicing saying I have problems with my mouth I'm someone who argues and someone who complains. And yet praise God for his grace in my life. He's at work in me to make me more like his son. And you apply these great truths of the gospel and of God's grace to your heart. You know what's wrong with you in a deep and a profound way. But Jesus Christ, like the servant girl washing away the blood, has taken away from you every imperfection and has laid it all on his son so that now he accepts you as pure and as spotless. There's no condemnation for anyone who's in Christ Jesus. And all of us need to go back to his grace. That's how you change. You do not think you will be so burdened just to think, I need to work harder, I need to do more. No, you don't, and no, you can't. You need to come and dip yourself into the grace of the gospel 
see your sin paid for see the stain of your sin removed by the blood of Jesus and then that forces you to see the wonder and the depth and the strength of his grace and that changes the heart it changes the heart it's about sacrifice and it's about service